0: Hallå och välkommen till en ny episode av PL Kvarteret, som är er en podcast med mig Lars i samarbete med Betsson det er fredag middag och det börjar att dra sig till VM i fotball det börjar näste helg det hela och detta är er ju ett litet ovanligt världsmästerskap på, på så många olika grunder jag vet att er like det alle alla är lika gira i märket det føles jo ikke helt sånn som det ska för ett VM så jag tänkte dem ska göra var och ta en prat med en person som jag bunder väldigt förosa det rätt ut en skribent och forfatter som inteligt har varit en väldigt flink man också er en väldigt klok man och ofte en person som jeg på något vänder mig lite til hvis jeg, hvis jeg lurer på ska göra i en en situation vad ville Felipe gjort en er en man kan man kan ställa sig själv Og och han kan mer om den kataprocessen än väldigt många andra som du lurer på hvorfor Hvorfor är er det egentligen vem i ørken nå så tänkte vi skulle ta en prat med Filip om hela grejer och ta en prat med han om hur ska man bäst måten att förhålla sig till det hela alltså det, det må ju bestämma för sig selv vad de har lyst til å gjøre, men i fall kan han tänker så, så jeg jag det är er intressant blir er en väldigt lång episode men det är er ju tung materie uh, so I hope that great, and it the uh, to flink So the rest of the episode I I hope, uh, hope we we'll hear it soon,
1: Okay, Mr. Philippe Eau I am delighted that you could take the time. Now, anyone who listening who don't know you already frankly need to reconsider their life choices i would say uh, but also just, just you know, well first of all you're a notable musician which always amazes me that your wikipedia page is mostly about your music yeah. career more so than your writing but you're also really it feels awkward saying this to to your face but one of my favorite football writers uh, the, the, your book on on cantina is one of the all-time great football books and um and of course during the last decade you've been a persistent thorn in fifa's side as well doing some very serious and important investigative work uh, norwegians might know you as a contributor to yosimar yep. i know you as a contributor to yosimar's top 50 lists correct uh, because whenever i've Whenever I've transcribed them, you've said some unbelievably libelous things that we couldn't put in the magazine. So Let's carry on. You though. know, some people some people shoot from the hip. You, sir, you fire artillery shells from the hip and you never miss. Mr. Filippo Clare, thanks for taking the time.
2: Thank you very much, Lars, and, and hello, everyone.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, got a, I've got a sound box. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, now. I'm going to ask you a profoundly horrible question to kick off, which is Carry on. just about a week a week out from the World Cup in Qatar. The simple question is, how on earth did we end up here? How did this become a thing? Why is this happening? <laughs> Why? I mean, really, because for all the talk and all the thousands of words written, right. it's still like we sit here thinking, how on earth did we get here?
2: Yeah, uh, right. Um, now, I could lead you in... Um a dark shady path in the forest, but that would take a very long time. So I'm going to satisfy myself with the kind of bonsai version and I'll try not to lead you up the garden path at the same time. So wish me luck. Uh, Basically what happened is that um, FIFA decided to nominate the organizing countries for both the 2018 and 2022 World Cups at the same time, which was a big mistake. And uh, the start, I must say, well, one of the key elements in, in the complete mess that, that followed. Um, at the time, FIFA was controlled by uh, Sepp Blatter. Of course, everybody will have heard his name. And by an executive committee of 24 men, because obviously they had to be men, uh, most of them <laughs> middle-aged, And let's not beat about the Bush. Almost all of them totally corrupt. Um, And these people may have liked football in a former life, but certainly considered it as a great way to uh, wield power and earn a lot of money uh, at the time. This is not libelous to say that. If you look at where they are now, um, quite a few are dead uh, because they were quite old at the time already. Quite a few have been suspended. Some have been jailed. Um, a number are under investigation uh, still now for this and other things. So it was really a cast of crooks like football has never had never got together before. And it and, was, and we are
1: yeah, we are on solid ground with this because, I mean, you, you could like people have made the list like our friend Nick Harris yes. has just made a simple list of where these guys are. I might retweet that now. And yeah, the number of them who have since been banned or uh, under investigation or uh, indicted for various wrongdoing, it's its quite staggering.
2: It, it is absolutely staggering. What we had was a, a, a cast of absolute gangsters. Mafiosi, mm. really. There's no other word mm. for it. And these people, uh, the decision of who was going to host the, the World Cup was entirely down to those guys. And When the bids were launched, I mean, there was first like a tender. It's exactly like, uh, you know, FIFA goes out and says, hey, guys, who would like to organize the 2018 and 2022 World Cup? Then some people at the back of the class say, I will, sir, I will, sir. And for 2022, I'm simplifying things a little bit here because it was more complicated than that. In the end, we ended up with um, candidates from Asia and America, North America. So we had uh, Australia, which believe it or not, for FIFA is part of Asia. Uh, we had Japan, uh, Korea, Qatar, which is of course part of Asia as a Gulf country, and the United States of America, who were the massive favourite for you know to mm-hmm. host uh, the 2022 World Cup, and were also, by the way, Sepp Blatter's favourite choice because you know in his uh, dreams of in his egomaniacal dreams of perhaps getting the Nobel Prize one day. Uh, which was a genuine ambition for him, he thought, well, what if we could give the the World Cup to the two historical rivals and enemies of the Cold War? Wouldn't that be an amazing symbol of reconciliation mm. and how football can draw people together?
1: Any- so, so, so that is something, sorry, that a lot of listeners to this podcast might not be aware. Like, Sepp Blatter is so often held up as the boogeyman and there are ways in which he fit that description. Oh, yes. But when it comes to Qatar, he was enthusiastically and vehemently anti-Qatar. He was. Um,
2: I mean, there are some people I know of one fellow FIFA investigator who has got a more nuanced point of view about that, that he thought that Blatter uh, might have somehow not be against. I think that in his particular case, I think he was willing to keep all his options open, but his preference very Mm. much went to the United States of America. And Mm. um, So the campaign began, and it's quite a short campaign. You know, it's about two years in which the bidding countries have got to put together their their bid. Uh, They uh, welcome uh, FIFA technical inspectors. Uh, They do a lot of promotion. They spend a lot of money, millions and millions and millions of dollars on uh, paying ambassadors and uh, taking Mm. journalists on junkets and trying to drum up some support for their bids and so forth and the Qataris did it, but the difference is that they did it uh, to an extent that was totally unheard of beforehand. Um, mm. They spent, I, nobody exactly knows how much they spent on the campaign. I'm not talking about the cost of the world cup, which is ex- estimated to be around 200 billion in total, um, putting the infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, not just the stadiums, but also all the infrastructure, 200 billion, small, small change. Um, In terms of the campaign itself, they probably put 10 or 15 times officially what the other candidates, the wealthiest candidates were putting. So they decided, okay, let's go. Which enables them, by the way, to get um, to pay ambassadors because, Mm. you know, Lars, I mean, if I were to ask you, give me the name of one Qatari footballer uh, in 2010, I think you might have a bit of a problem.
1: I think I would, yeah. Mm.
2: They were, I think, hundred and. Seventh or below are in the FIFA World Rankings. Uh, They had only uh, a a few thousand registered players. Mm. Mm. Uh, They had one stadium. Obviously, uh, the heat was a massive problem because the, the tender specified that the World Cup would be played in June and July. When the average temperature is about 43, 43 degree, forty four degrees, so it it, it made and, no and man, sense. Man, I mean, it basically made no. no sense. I mean, and and also no. very importantly, last uh, and and uh, the technical commission uh, of the of FIFA, uh, which was led by uh, a Chilean chap, uh, Harold May Nichols, came back from inspection and and waved a red flag, said. It was Mm. the only country which raised actually for which a red flag flag was raised. And there were two things. One of them was the temperature, second thing was the uh, shorts. Uh, The the, the country so small is the size of Connecticut, basically.
1: Mm. Uh, It's
2: so small that it presents incredible safety and security risks. Yeah,
1: to 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 put it in a Norwegian context, I'm pretty sure in terms of square footage, it's smaller than Hordaland, uh, which is one of the regions in Norway. Uh, so it is it is tiny, and and obviously one of the many questions the whole process raises: Why do you even do these uh, these surveys to to check on the the candidates? To see who's take these technical surveys, because in both the case of twenty eighteen and twenty twenty two, the lowest ranked <laughs> country in the technical survey ended up being awarded the tournament. Yeah,
2: maybe it's a case of who loses wins. I don't know. You know, one of those games that we play when we're children. Um, mm. And also, you have to. You should know that of the 24 members of the uh, executive committee, plus said Blatter, I mean, the 24 members, only one member asked for the actual technical dossier to be forwarded to him. The other 23 didn't bother to read it. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> true.
1: So, no, I have read it. It's pretty boring, but I still, yeah, it's uh, pretty irresponsible, all things considered. Y-
2: you would have thought so. So um, a lot of money was spent uh, officially and unofficially. And this is where... We, um, even though I know that the libel laws in, in Norway are quite lax, thankfully.
1: Hmm. Let's let's just be a little bit careful.
2: Yeah, but that's not the problem, because I'm going to quote from an FBI indictment. That's allowed. Hmm. And yes. in the F- an FBI indictment, which was presented to a court in Brooklyn in 2020, there is one paragraph which says very clearly, black on white, it's there on the paper, it's an FBI indictment. Indictment, allegation, and actually accusation. They say that Ricardo Teixeira, the Brazilian member of the executive committee, Nicolas Leos, the Paraguayan member of the executive committee of FIFA, and a third co-conspirator, who is Don Julio Gondona, or rather the late Don Julio Gondona, president of the Argentinian Federation, also member of the executive committee. All of them took bribes to vote for Qatar. It's what the mm. FBI says. Uh, the Qataris themselves deny that's the case, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm sorry, it's, you know, it's your choice, guys. You believe the Qataris or you believe the FBI. Um, yeah. And also there were a number of things which were very close to the, to the red line, so to speak. At the time, for example, it was still allowed, unbelievably, uh, for the Qataris to uh, pay the African Confederation the cost of its Congress,
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Which I've definitely didn't influence their votes at all. Not,
2: especially since they one of the conditions for this was that the other bidding countries would not be able <laughs> to approach the delegates, whereas they would be yeah. doing so. Yeah. And of course, it's at, at this famous uh, Congress in Luanda that, according to whistleblower Federal Al Majid, who used to work for the Supreme Committee and whom I know and whom I've spoken to, Uh, that uh, the head of the Qatari Supreme Committee, Hassan al-Tawadi, welcomed a series of African uh, dignitaries, let's give them that name, and proposed $1.5 million to each of them in exchange for their vote. This is the allegation that she came out with in 2011. Then she went back on it. Then Mm. she said, I was actually intimidated into denying my own story, but I can assure you this happened i was there i was in the hotel room i spoke to to fedra myself at length about that actually i it took me about six months of work to convince her to to go on the record with that and to give me the names of the people but she did and i think that she has also reiterated uh, these allegations in the uh, excellent by the way netflix uh, documentary which has just been uh, released about uh, about fifa and how we got there mm. um, a really good watch by the way so anyway, a lot of money changed hands. There was also a very strange payment of, uh, hold on to your seat, 39 million euros, uh, which uh, landed in the uh, Monaco account of Ricardo Teixeira, so the president of the Brazilian mm. uh, Federation, mysteriously. Um, and I, I'm not going to say who put that money in his account. I know that, but it's, um, I, perhaps that's going a little bit
1: too far. And, uh, it, it might be, and, but what I would also interject is that in addition to these stories, there's a line that's kind of stuck with me. I wonder, it might have been Simon Cooper who, who wrote it in a piece, mm-hmm. but there's a the thing about if you are an entire country, <laughs> if you are a rich country and an uh, and, uh, undemocratic country, you can do all of these shenanigans that we've just touched on, but you also don't actually need to bribe anyone in the con- in the sort of conventional way of money in a brown envelope type of thing because yeah. you have other avenues available to you. Yep. Instead of approaching the guy who's on the Exco, you can go to the actual president of the country and say, hello, we're more than happy to invest some money into your little country. But, you know, by the way, this dude on the FA, would you mind having him vote for the thing?
2: Are you thinking about France and Michel Platini, perchance?
1: I mean that is a possible hypothetical in here, isn't yes, it? Yes,
2: absolutely, and it's it's probably the biggest scoop of my my career as an investigative journalist. I was given um, a, a very good source um, informed me that on twenty third of November uh, twenty ten, so that's basically just a few days before the vote, which was on second December. Uh, Michel Platini was uh, a guest uh, at the Elysee Palace of a president, then president Nicolas Sarkozy. And at this meeting, um, there were two meetings, actually. First, Sarkozy and Michel had a little cozy chat. Michel Platini, by the way, guys, uh, uh, was vice president of FIFA and president of UEFA at Mm. the time. At the moment, he's still serving a ban uh, for an illicit payment made by FIFA to him. I won't go into that just Google Platini payment bladder and you will see everything that there is to see, including the fact that the last trial ended up with both men being cleared after a fashion. Anyway, let's go hmm. back to that. So um, at this, the, first there was this meeting between Nicolas Sarkozy and Michel Platini. Then they moved to a different room where, surprise, surprise, were two Qatari, uh, two Qataris. And they were pretty important people. Uh, there was the crown prince, Sheikh Tamim Al-Thani, who is now the emir, became the emir in 2013. Mm-hmm. And there was HBJ, as everybody calls him, <laughs> Hamad bin Jassim, uh, who was prime minister and foreign affairs minister of Qatar. Perhaps the most powerful man in the emirate after the reigning emir was Sheikh Hamad. Perhaps even more powerful than him in some ways, we came to take some really important decision. So Platini found himself with in the presence of statesmen. And mm. um, he had until then uh, been in favor of the US and he changed his mind. Now mm. he will say that he changed his mind before the meeting. Mm, okay. Perhaps. Uh, it was a very recent decision, a very recent switch, by the way. And mm. because he was the president of UEFA, he was able to take Along with him, a couple of votes as well from UEFA, from the European Confederation. Uh, the hmm. vote of Marius Karatis, uh, the Cypriot delegate, was already in the back for the Qataris. Uh, another story that I that I printed I, that I found uh, was that Marius um in 2011, just a few months after the vote, successful vote for the Qataris, uh, sold a piece of real estate uh, in Cyprus at about twice or three times its value, and the people who purchased it were the Qataris. But <laughs> It's funny yeah, that. Yeah, it's funny that. Anyway, so, yes, the Qataris were saying to Nicolas Sarkozy, listen, you know, we like France. We want to carry on investing in France. France was trying to flog a, a number of the so-called Rafale fighter jets. So it's like we're talking mm. billions of dollars here worth of, uh, of sales from uh, our arms industry to, to Qatar. And uh, so, you know, there were some quite strong arguments for the Qataris to use to to tell Nicolas Sarkozy it would actually be a good idea if, you know, Michel could vote for us and so forth. Again, I'm simplifying stuff because there had been tractations, you know, in in other places before that. But it was very much the idea that, yes, there was political pressure, uh, just as there was political pressure on the Germans to vote for Russia at the time. And Mm, Sepp Blatter, mm. by the way, uh, went public about this after the event. He said that the reason why Qatar had got the World Cup, which he keeps saying was a bad idea, the wrong idea, is he doesn't talk about the corruption too much because he can't for obvious legal reasons. But what he can talk about is political pressure. And there was political pressure. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that on the 2nd of December 2010, the 24 delegates had become 22 because two of them <laughs> had been filmed uh, pr- pr- proposing to sell their votes, which
1: is uh... It's just you got to like you got to not say that to reporters with hidden cameras. No, That's the one No, you shouldn't say that. that no. You know, it's like Fight Club. There's don't, there's the first rule of Exco Club. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't talk about Exco Club, I guess. <laughs> and, uh,
2: they, they did. And uh, so they got, um, they got banned. FIFA had no choice. Um, and so 22 middle-aged men gathered in Zurich at FIFA House and then proceeded with the vote. And you know, the FIFA vote, the way it works at the time, worked at the time, is that, first of all, it was secret bulletin. So mm-hmm. nobody has ever said for whom they voted, apart from Michel Platini, who said admittedly he voted for Qatar, right? Mm. Apart from that, nobody knows for, for sure, even though everybody knows who <laughs> voted for whom. <laughs> it's a miracle, isn't it? And so there were several rounds, because the way it works is that each round of voting the country, unless there's a, a majority, you know, from the first vote onwards, which was not the case, the country which gets the fewest votes, the fewer votes, is eliminated. Then there is a second round of voting. Mm-hmm. The country which gets the fewer votes is eliminated. You carry on like this up until a moment where basically you've got two countries, two, two bidders. In this particular case, it was Qatar and the United States. And to the immense surprise uh, of everybody who had been following this, uh, Qatar was chosen uh, with quite a, quite a large majority by this executive committee. Uh, there had been rumors, last before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, and I can say that because I think I've already, I've a- a- already been pub- come public about this. I actually contacted England 2018 uh, I knew a few mm. people on the bid uh, before the 2nd of December. And I said, guys, just to let you know, all the information I'm getting suggests that the Qataris are going to get it. And I was literally laughed out of the room, but there you go. Um, so th- there was there was something afoot. We knew that it had been the dirtiest campaign. We knew, by the way, that not everybody, uh, no, oh, actually nobody was totally clean uh, mm. The Russians certainly
1: were not. Uh- well, I mean, we don't know, because when it was <laughs> investigated, they, they all the computers had gone. <laughs> I mean, you, for listeners who don't know, I mean, we might get to it, but there was an investigation. There was an inquiry yes. on the side of FIFA. And, you know, the bids, which was a pretty flawed investigation because it had no power of subpoena of any kind. So they basically just have to go around and ask, well, hello, would you like to inform us of your... You know, would you like to give some evidence against yourself here, guys? Like, so that was all a little bit tricky. But when it came to the Russians, you know, computer says yes, that the computer, they all, you know, they were all deleted and expo- exploded and whatever thrown in the sea or whatever they've done to them. So there yeah, was just no, it, it, no one, fact, no one knows what happened on, I, I, the, I on the Russian campaign.
2: They obviously were great inspirations for Rebecca Vardy, who lost the, yeah. the phone in the North Sea. <laughs> And, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> and uh, The Russians were the
1: Rebecca Vardy's of the football <laughs> politics. Yeah.
2: And uh, because, for example, the, the, the English, you know, went to Jack Warner, one of the most, I mean, astonishingly brazen crooks in, in world football, who still actually is in Tobago, uh, has got so much dirt on so many people back there that nobody dares extradite him. And, and, and the, Engle- the English went to Jack and uh, suggested to hold a friendly, you know, friendly game. And obviously mm-hmm. the, receipts, the, the proceeds would go to the Trinidad and Tobago FA. That's basically mm-hmm. would go straight to our friend's pocket. And that's, mm-hmm. that's corruption too. But it was <laughs> not on the same scale. And in fact, I think of all the bids, the Australians were quite dirty as well, quite grubby. The Japanese a couple of things perhaps we should were not quite right, but they were okay. Uh the Koreans there was a bit of daring do. The only ones uh who I think were, were clean were certainly not the Spaniards, uh who were in, in, in tow with the with the Qataris, were the Belgians and, and the Netherlands. And thinking back of it, I wish it had they had one. It was an amazing bid. It was it was to be the green World Cup, but a properly green one. Mm. It was a brilliant bid. So, it didn't stand a chance to uh, to win. And so the Qataris won. But last, that was the beginning of the problem. Yeah. Because how do you hold what what, what now? What now? <laughs>
1: how yeah. do you
2: hold a World Cup in June and July in a country where the average temperature uh, at the time when you you know when you're supposed to play uh, is over 40 degrees you can't you're going to kill players you're going to kill spectators and players mm. and so that went on for a few years uh, there was a discussion as to whether it would be a good idea to extend the world cup to the whole region to other countries in the gulf which showed from the people who suggested that platini being one of them the complete ignorance of the uh, political tensions in that region because the qataris are absolutely hated by the neighbor by the neighbors Mm. uaes and saudi arabia in particular for religious and political reasons um we won't go into details you know look into it but you'll find out that for qatar for example was subjected to a blockade as uh, by these neighboring countries as as late as 2017.
1: and and that's i mean i remember when i was doing a story on this a number of years ago i spoke to to a foreign affairs expert who was making the case that that's actually one of the big reasons why Qatar are investing in football and investing in mm. so many very visible brands and, and issues in the West is that they look back at the, the first Gulf War and Correct. when Iraq basically got, tried to gobble up Kuwait and the Americans came to help them. And they asked themselves, well, if the Saudis tried to gobble us up, who's coming to help? And what can we do to make sure someone would?
2: Yeah. And I think this is the right way to look at it. People talk a lot about sports washing and soft power, and that's bollocks. Sports washing in terms of uh, enhancing Qatar's reputation, I think this World Cup has had exactly the opposite effect. In fact, everybody mm. is talking of Qatar at the moment as a, almost a quasi-slave country, in which um, women are subjugated and people from sexual minorities are persecuted. So. Uh, that's great for their image, isn't it? And their reputation. Yeah. But one thing that it's that they've managed to do is that everybody talks about Qatar. So everybody knows where it is because to be honest, I think most of us, like 10, well, 12, 12 years ago, if we had been asked to put Qatar on the map, we had, you know, the more geographically inclined, I thought, yeah, it's in the Gulf. Where exactly? Oh, it's that funny little peninsula. Oh, I had no idea. Uh, we didn't know how many people lived there and we had no idea about that country. Now everybody knows. And Qatar has uh, now some diplomat, very important diplomatic links uh, with powers throughout the globe. For example, the, there has been a big rapprochement with, uh, with China surprise, surprise, mm. uh, which is, explains part of their strange attitude towards the war in Ukraine and you know other things. Let's not go into that thing, but anyway, Qatar has a much bigger presence on, in the concert of nations. And in diplomatic circles than it has ever had. So for them, it was a means to guarantee their security first and foremost. And on that on that side, it's been a success. On the soft power sports washing thing, it's been a complete utter failure. It's had it has the opposite effect actually.
1: And and that perspective also helps. Put some of the spending in perspective, because you look at some of the sums of money yeah. that's been spent. What you shouldn't you shouldn't be comparing it to other sports events. You shouldn't be comparing it to other cultural events. You should actually be spending it, comparing it to other countries' defense budgets. Really, when you think about it.
2: Yes. No. Absolutely. And um, because you think, well, it doesn't make any sense to spend two hundred billion dollars in on infrastructure for a World Cup. Well, except it's not infrastructure for the World Cup. It's infrastructure for Qatar. And mm-hmm. uh, for what is going to follow this World Cup, because don't don't think for one second that Qatar is going to drop its sports policy. No, that's all. Mm-hmm. They're going to carry on. Football is one of many things. Actually, in fact, uh, we've learned that they were hosting the uh, the Asian Cup in 2023, and by the way, they're hosting it in June and July. So good luck, guys. That's going to be great. And um, and 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 you can see, you can understand as well. Now, why Saudi Arabia, who have kept a very close eye on what is going in Qatar, is now investing hundreds of billions of dollars of its own money into creating NEOM, uh, the, the, the mm. new city in the north of the country, which is uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's you know, dream, where they will organize, believe it or not, in Saudi Arabia, the Asian Winter Games.
1: I saw this. This is a particularly mental idea. Yeah,
2: it is completely mental, absolutely. Uh, If there's still a planet left by the time this competition is supposed to take place. But anyway, yes, you're absolutely right. There there is a diplomatic dimension to this and which explains why they were so keen on getting it and why money was of no import. Uh, Don't think for one second that the Qataris are very loose with their own money and don't care how they spend it because if that were the case, the minimum salary in Qatar wouldn't be something like mm. a, a thousand euros. What well what am I talking about? Uh, a month, a thousand euros, two hundred euros a month uh, for the mm. the poorest of the migrant workers. They would they wouldn't care. They would give them five times that, and they wouldn't care because mm. they've got the money. You see.
1: Okay, so so that's how we ended up with the World Cup going there, but like you said, that was kind of only the start of the whole ordeal. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because we had to move the World Cup first. Instead, yeah. Yes. And and,
1: uh, and then investigate. Yeah,
2: and, and, and that's extraordinary. Uh, because I remember at the time, um, we did, uh, you know, because I was doing at the time, was working for France football. And from uh, January 2013 onwards, we were publishing with my friend Eric Champel. We also published a book on the subject. But every week or two weeks, we were publishing a new uh, investigation into Qatar what had happened and what it meant and so forth and we did one special issue which was all about which was called the uh, cataclysm the cataclysm mm. uh which was all about a world cup in the summer i think it's impossible so it's got to move to the winter and we talked to dozens of people throughout football and important people you know like from federations confederations from fifth pro uh, from club associations, we talked to players and so on, and so we talked to to uh, doctors. Uh, and they all said, this is crazy. It can't happen in the summer, but also it can't happen in the winter either, because if it happens, what are we going to do to the rest of football? It makes no sense. But of course, as it had to be done so that Qatar could stage this World Cup, you just took instead of a you know a shoehorn, you took a bulldozer and you absolutely wrecked the football calendar just for one World Cup. So you wrecked Mm. it for two years before and especially for two years afterwards. And we now have what we have. And now people are starting to think, it's funny how many players are already going to be missing the World Cup because they're injured. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it has to do with the fact that the interseason was shorter, that they had to go back to... Uh, train and play much earlier than they've ever done, that we've had to, well, shoehorn extra rounds when we would normally have had a couple of weeks where you didn't play on a Wednesday or a Thursday, and nobody could change the Nations League program or the Champions League program, so we had to, and yeah, and then what? Then we have players, uh, now it's Marco Reus, I hear, Sadio Mane, probably, Not still 100% sure. And there will be more. There will be more. And all of this, and and by the way, in which state will they come back from it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But but can I actually throw in here, and maybe this is me being slightly contrarian, contrarian. is that out out of all the things around this tournament that are problematic... The moving it to the winter is probably the one thing I can theoretically get on board with because okay. I understand the prince. I understand the principle that it is a global game at this point, and having a situation where you're telling uh, not just Qatar but also a number of other countries on the planet and say, "Guys, you can never host the World Cup under any circumstance because it's too hot, and because we have to play it at a time that suits." The, uh, certain other countries on the planet, I can I can see how that's you could argue that that's I, not I, I right, and is, it should be I possible. Think this is
2: the biggest loot of bollocks I've ever heard, uh, <laughs> Lars. I'm so I'm sorry. If you use that uh, particular argument, you would say, "Well, actually, let's have the Olympic Winter Games in Saudi Arabia." Oops. Maybe we will. Um, I but I would argue that the
0: that de, deluge de
1: deluge is not a global sport in quite the same way. I mean, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe the Nordic Combine will be all the rage uh, amongst the the, the, the the Moroccans and whatever. But I don't. So far, uh, yeah. no, not I really mean, the case. I, I think that
2: it is actually a it's a warped argument. In the in the principle, I entirely agree with you. Is that if you call it a global game, there is no way which you should prevent countries from hosting it. But what I would be saying is that you're already preventing almost every single country to host it on its own because it's too big and it costs too much money so mm-hmm. you can take mm-hmm. out i can take i can tell you now you will never have a world cup in polynesia right you won't no uh, i think it's pretty i i'm not too sure you're going to have one in central america either even though there's a fantastic football culture there and so forth and mm. stadiums, but I'm not sure that they could do that. Um, there are also a number of European countries which on their own couldn't stage it. That's uh, especially now given the economic situation in the world. So there's that. That's the first yeah. thing. The second thing, if you want to go down that route and why not? Let's go down that route. What you do is that you set the rules before you actually ask people to be candidates. Yeah. You don't suddenly yeah. change the rules and say, you know what? It's not, uh, I don't want a bungalow here. You know, that's that's what I ask you to quote me for. I don't want a bungalow. I want a 17-story high building. You know, you don't, or, or the opposite. You don't do that. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, it's yes. absolutely ridiculous. But, but, uh, and the argument, yes, the World Cup should go everywhere. Well, yeah, okay, if you want to do that, do two things. We shouldn't have tw- 32 countries and ask for something like eight stadiums From 40,000 to 80,000 capacity to FIFA standards, it's impossible. It's too expensive. Environmentally, it's a catastrophe. And no country today has really the means, no smaller country has the means to organize that. Second thing, if you want it to be uh, in the winter, it's something that you've got to plan years and years in advance. You've got to reform the football calendar years and years in advance to make sure that you'll be fine with that. So the wait was Mm. done was basically after the event, just to suit the Qataris to change the dates. And it's a bit like the argument that criticising the Qataris is being racist. It's honestly the biggest loads of bollocks that I've ever heard. It's basically what uh, propagandists and Qatari shields are trying to propagate. They're trying to present themselves as being this smaller nation, which has a right to organise a a world-class tournament. Yeah, sure, sure thing. But play by the rules, guys. Then you can have the normal tournament. Yeah. What's wrong? You know, the FIFA has got prerequisite in its charter and its, statute, its statutes, which which gives you an idea of who can organize tournaments and who can't. Some countries never will be able. Mozambique will never host a World Cup. Is that unfair? Yes, it's bloody unfair. Mauritania will never host a World Cup. Ever. Uh
1: um, I'm, thinking, yeah, I'm thinking the Estonian World Cup probably not happening. Yeah,
2: probably. And
1: Dora, um, doesn't look good doesn't for you guys. Look,
2: but also there are some countries which simply can't afford that. Poorer countries can't mm. afford it. When it, The argument, everybody should have a right, is in principle, yeah, that's great. But there are, because of the nature of the tournament, you know, it was possible to think of the World Cup taking place in Colombia in 1986. Do you remember? That's why it was supposed to take place. Mm-hmm. It was not crazy. Mm-hmm. And but could you imagine the World Cup taking place in only Colombia these days? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think.
1: And this, of course, is exacerbated by the change of format, which is coming in for the next tournament, oh, uh, which is uh, oh, just deranged. Uh, but let's not even start no. on that. I mean, that's one of the one of the many tragedies. Is that this? We're in theory, we should be looking at this as like the last uh, proper World Cup before it goes to 48 teams and the three-team group and it all just becomes a mess. But it's kind of hard to look at it like that because there's so much bad uh, a, a badness about it, uh, which, which is uh, sad. FIFA did have an investigation into the, the goings-on, which I, I do remember perhaps naively I thought something could come of But in hindsight, I mean, maybe that was ridiculous of me not to realize that an investigator with no power of subpoena uh, could actually uncover anything of this because you'd be relying on people telling on themselves. And why on earth would you do that?
2: I shared your optimism for a while because Mm. I had spoken to Blatter and I'd been really struck by the tone of the conversation when we talked about qatar it was clear he was seething he was mm-hmm. not happy at all and also um I, I i was the first journalist to meet with the um uh, the investigator michael garcia i went to see him in zurich mm. and i looked at the uh, cv of that chap and i thought that's pretty damn serious the guy was the head of interpol in the u.s he was district attorney for the state of new york he was one of the key prosecutors uh, in a number of terrorist cases. I mean, it's, just, it's really, really serious. Yeah. And also the guy from the, um, uh, the other chamber of the Ethics Commission, Hans-Joachim Eckert, when I asked the question to German friends, they said, yeah, he's a really serious judge. He's not, you know, he's, you know, he's not somebody who is going to, be to, to do what is uh, what, what he's being told to do. He's going to be his own man. And when I met uh, Garcia uh, in Zurich, I was quite impressed. Uh, I didn't have the impression of talking to a bullshitter at all. And I was Mm. also impressed by how quickly, because he literally had just been on the dossier for a couple of months at the time, uh, how quickly he'd mastered an awful lot of the stuff that had been going on. And, Mm. for example, uh, I can talk about it now, but I brought some information about uh, the Thai member of the executive committee and some gas deals. Mm -hmm, He had that all already. And believe me, I had Mm. fought, I had really struggled to get those details. And he was very keen to hear what we had to say. And he was very keen to share, or certainly for us to share what we found. But then, as month went by, the tone changed and we realized there must be pressures. He's always, I mean, I, I saw Michael Garcia in New York, I think um, two years after um, he basically threw in the towel because he said that what FIFA had come up with was not faithful to his own report. Mm. You know, we shouldn't forget that he actually slammed a dog getting out of the building there. So he wasn't so yeah. happy about the way FIFA had handled it. And he, I think there was one point where he, where he felt, you know what, it's not worth it because these guys, as you said, they will never talk. He mm. had some shouting uh, matches with uh, Julio Grantona. And even if he meant really, really meant business, what he came up with, and he came up with quite a lot, to be honest to him, to be fair to him, he came up with quite a lot. Um, what he had was no smoking gun, uh, what people mm. call the smoking gun, which is crazy because I it's it's in when it comes to Qatar 2022 and Russia 2018 talking about a smoking gun first of all it's completely misunderstanding the nature of corruption in in the 21st century which is no longer uh you know 100 dollar banknotes stuffed in a brown paper envelope it's a little bit more sophisticated than that and 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 the second thing is that he he was completely powerless to put people in front of the evidence and and to have the same power. He talked to me actually about it. He said, you know, when I was the DA, I could, you know, get those guys to come into my office and they had to talk to me. And if they didn't talk to me, they would be in serious jeopardy. These guys, they could just yeah. ignore me. They they could you know they were supposed yeah. to cooperate. And if FIFA had <laughs> the had given him the powers. To say, well, refusal to cooperate will um, mean suspension, for example. Yeah. Uh, Wow. But it didn't. Like, for example, for the Russians.
1: Yeah, that was the example I was going to get to. Because in the end, whatever Mr. Garcia's CV was... If he's there to investigate how the Russians won, well, he couldn't. You, the, know, that. Their you know that. Well, yeah. And, and, the, and the Russians say, well, you know, computer says, yeah, you know, computer in the sea. We have, we have, no, no, as but the it, hard there's lines. more than, there's
2: more <laughs> to it than that. He could not investigate the Russians because he was on a personal non grata list from the Russians because he was part of the people who drew the Magnits- Magnits- Magnitsky list because he had ah. fought, he, he had actually prosecuted Russian terrorists. So therefore, he couldn't go to Russia himself. So it was Cornel Borbély, one of his assistants, who did the work in in Russia, and there is a chapter in the Garcia report about Russia, and it has <laughs> it has uh, as many pages and the same content as this famous chapter from the memoirs of this English player, which is called what football directors know about football and which is a, bl- a famous <laughs> blank page, right? So there is yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. nothing because the Russians basically refused to cooperate. That was that. Yeah. And, and um, the Qataris did cooperate, but obviously up to a certain you know, um, certain extent and got off relatively uh, scot-free even though there were a number of uh, orange flags which were waved mm-hmm. in, in the Garcia report itself to be honest, I think that there was enough in the Garcia report to have the whole of both competition uh, being voted for again. I think, I think that I think yeah, there was so enough, th- and FIFA decided basically said, "Yeah, there's nothing really, 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 really bad, uh, so we can carry on."
1: So, so that's actually an interesting direction to take it in now. Because do you feel, and you've been very close to the story throughout. Was there ever a point at which it could have been changed? Was there ever a point at which this could have been reversed? Yeah, 2011.
2: Absolutely, without a doubt. Absolutely, without a doubt. I think that Blatter um, finally decided, you know what, it's not going to happen. Because what Blatter was thinking of as well was his own future as president of FIFA. You shouldn't forget that. Mm -hmm. And that his main opponent uh, at the time. Uh, was the Qatari president of the Asian Confederation, Mohammed bin Hammam. Shouldn't forget Mm. that.
1: Who we haven't actually mentioned yet. I mean, that's that's also a background to the Qatari bid, was that he had been president of the Asian Confederation a confederation yeah. for many years, and during this period, had uh, shall we say, cultivated very strong relationships with the various African FAs out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Af- uh, which Asian I'm sure was, so was because
2: he was basically he wanted to be uh, he wanted to be FIFA president. Uh, Mohammed mm-hmm. bin Hammam was far far more interested in becoming FIFA president than in Qatar getting the World Cup. And in fact, uh, bin Hammam, contrary to what some of my colleagues have been writing, um, was so lukewarm that some people said that he was actually not in favor of uh, Qatar's bid. He thought it Mm. would be taking too much space, too much place, didn't stand a chance. And it's only quite late in the day, uh, at the end of the autumn of 2009, that he obeyed uh, the the Sheikh's uh, order and decided to give his support. Uh, But he had cultivated, Mm. yes, a lot of um, friendships uh, throughout Asia and Africa, but it was mostly a... To uh, bolster his support uh, in 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 the continent of which he was the president, uh, in terms of football, of course, Asia, and to get uh, a, as much support as possible when he would defy Sepp Blatter for the presidency of FIFA, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was apart from one particular case, I'm not going to go into detail because that's that's really far too granular. Apart from one case, which is in the Garcia report, which is available online. Um, all the money that was spent by Mohammed bin Hammam on African and Asian dignitaries was not—and I repeat, not—used to promote Qatar 2022's case or cause, mm-hmm. but his own. Uh, but mm-hmm. he was—he was an important man because, you know, he certainly put his shoulder to the wheel in the last—in um, the last year of the bidding. So it was important, yeah. absolutely. But that tells you actually, and I, that gives you an idea of how powerful Qatar was at the time. You know, yeah, they had a guy who was a vice president of FIFA, a member of the executive committee, and to be honest, if he had been allowed uh, to stand for the FIFA presidency, I think he would have stood a very good chance of being elected and of ousting Sepp Blatter. He was a popular man. He's a very intelligent, very smart, very articulate man, Mohammed bin Hammam. Very impressive. And um, he would have been a formidable opponent for Blatter, which is why Blatter wanted to stop him. And which is why perhaps uh, FIFA's ethics committee suspended him just a few days before the uh, 2011 election. Oh, well, you know, it's funny that. that. And uh, yeah.
1: So So this was the time around 2011, around the election.
2: When I thought myself and a few others that. Things are not going well for the Qataris. Uh, it's still early in the day. Um, they haven't really started spending money on infrastructure. So FIFA could go to them and say, you know what, guys, you've really done too much. You've crossed the red line too often. Terry, sorry, we're going to have the, have the vote again. They could have done that. They didn't do it.
1: Was there any, I mean, the popular theory as well is that when the, the House of Blatter all came crashing down, eventually and there was a changing of the guard that there may have been an opening for FIFA to go actually we're just gonna the, the, the previous regime was all bad and we're gonna look at this again but at that point perhaps we were already too far down the line with infrastructure being built and all that sort of stuff happening. yeah
2: and um, um, th- and the president the new president uh, of FIFA two zero, Jenny Infantino deciding to leave Zurich and uh, take up residence in Doha I think that will let you tell you Just all you need to know about the fact that perhaps he doesn't want to. Uh, and his links with, uh, with Qatar uh, predate his, uh, his time as FIFA president, uh, a role in which, by the way, he will be uh, reinstated without a position by acclamation at the Congress, FIFA Congress in Kigali in March 2023, because this is the way that transparent and democratic FIFA works.
1: No, I think if we set off in the direction of the current FIFA, and Mr. Infantino, I mean, that is a later chat, I think, for us to have at some point. Uh, We've had a good long discussion uh, about how we got here. I think listeners will have a good feel for it now. I I guess there are a couple of things more to to address before we, we leave it, one of which is being... If you're enormously frustrated with the fact that this has happened at the World Cup is in Qatar, wh- where should you direct that energy, I suppose? I mean, first of all, what have we learned from this whole process? What can be done the next time? I mean, there is a Saudi bid for 2030 coming down the pipeline. We, we It's easy to feel powerless as football fans. What can we actually do to avoid this kind of nonsense happening again?
2: Um, huh, dear. That's the... Uh that's the billion dollar. That's a five hundred billion dollar question. <laughs> um, as it stands, a Saudi bid would probably need uh, the country would need to change almost entirely, and FIFA would have to write new statutes for Saudi Arabia to be a legitimate candidate, despite the excellent relationship that Jenny Infantino as with Mohammed bin Salman. The reason for that is that FIFA has uh, uh, drawn its own charter of human rights in 2021, so it was not applicable for Qatar 2022, which had been chosen in 2010. But from now on, it's, FIFA is supposed to play by the book. And Saudi mm. Arabia is in flagrant, obvious violation of almost every single uh, provision in this charter. So either Mohammed bin Salman uh, wants to become an enlightened um, sovereign of Saudi Arabia, and the signs are not very encouraging, to be honest, to, to say the least, um, or FIFA will have, again, to ride roughshod about everything, and then you will have, I think you will have a boycott. And and they can't yeah. but that. The, 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 will be a but
1: the, the latter option, yeah, the latter the latter option is what would concern me. I'm, you mentioned the statutes and they've drawn up a charter. I, I mean, I'm not sure i trust FIFA uh, to follow their own rules. Well, if, you know. uh, mm,
2: I think it would be, it's written in such a way that it would be extremely difficult, even for Jenny Infantino, and even knowing the subservience of the 211 or most of the 211 member associations of FIFA, I think this would be a particularly difficult snake to swallow. Um, but you know mm-hmm. even if they I think there would be a huge movement to boycott uh, Saudi Arabia I don't think that makes uh, much doubt and I think as well the the thing is that in a way what's happening with Qatar 2022 makes it very unlikely for Saudi Arabia 2032 to happen I think all the things will happen I think you will see Saudi Arabia moving into football far more than they will they have done already with Newcastle I think you will see them um, starting to build um, uh, a multi-club ownership model not unlike uh, you know, the Manchester City or the City uh, Football Group for Manchester City. I think you'll see them becoming important bankers in the game, uh, mm. propping up, for example, the African Super League. I think that's very much in the pipeline as well. Uh, perhaps propping up a European Super League as well. Do you, do you remember, um, Lars, I'm sure you talked about it, actually, that they were at one point... Uh, in, involved in this as well as as yep. you know, the money coming from SoftBank was actually Saudi money. Um, mm. I also think that the other bid, I mean, I think the South American bid for 2030 is going to be incredibly popular. Um, mm. But it is FIFA, so everything is always possible with FIFA. <laughs> and how do we change it? Uh, it's going to be very tough because if I want to be, or if you want to be a candidate for the FIFA presidency, the answer is that you can't. You know, um, uh, because you have, you would have to have the uh, support of five member associations. So that's not mm. going to happen, is it? Even Im- yeah. imagine if you, I mean, Lisa claveness for example,
0: mm.
2: who is about the only FA president to have stood up to the current FIFA. Properly, I mean. Others are saying a few mm. words here and there. He stood up properly she didn't stand a chance. She could, she, I don't think she would have had the five letters of, uh, of support to be a candidate. Mm. I'm, I'm not joking.
1: It'd be, be fun to see her try though.
2: I, I would have loved it. And I hope that in the future she can be, um, you know, she, she's still in place and she can be, um, uh, convinced that she's got a chance and she, she should run if only for the principal. um, but the days in which you know you had three or four candidates, which which has happened in the past, uh, they, they've long gone. And that's the thing. Sepp Blatter used to have, you know, he used to fight against people. He had uh, first of all, he had to beat Len- Leonard Johansson in a very dirty campaign. Mm-hmm. Then there was Isahaya too, uh, who was a, v- a formidable opponent. Uh, he also had Prince Ali. Uh, at least he had somebody who stood against him. Yeah, Jenny. No.
1: Yeah. No, no,
2: 2019 was it was acclamation. And 2023 will be the same. It's just a travesty. And and uh, so to go back to um to Qatar so there's no chance that you know he was going to do anything. And as to the future, okay, we know that we have another uh, really really environmentally friendly uh, World Cup coming in 2026 where you'll have to fly from Montreal to Guadalajara to uh Vancouver to Texas to I mean I can't remember where exactly it was but basically you're going to have to crisscross North America uh, to attend that um, that World Cup if it ever takes place and um, and then 2030 and uh, we're talking I mean it was brilliant because people were also talking about China for 2030 can you imagine if we had a situation <laughs> where the main rival for 2030. To China would be Saudi Arabia, and reciprocally, that would be fantastic. That would be the time to switch off our, I think, our televisions for good.
1: That, that could be the time for the Estonian bid to finally just uh, pr- propose an alternative. <laughs> <laughs> it's low key, it's compact. Yeah. Do you know, I love to see the World Cup in the Faroe Islands? What a thing that would be! Yeah,
2: absolutely, Tórshavn. Absolutely, let's. Uh, that would be quite fun. Uh, I think they would they need to start by perhaps uh, having a bigger airport. Or maybe fans would tra- <laughs> oh, maybe no, right? would, fans would travel uh, by boat. It would be
1: fun. It could also be mostly in the metaverse. I mean that that could yes, also be in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, lastly, whether we like it or not, the World Cup is here. It's in Qatar. It's in the yep. winter, um, and it's. I've, I've been thinking a lot about it, and one thing I found myself thinking about of all things is your Twitter bio, Mister Philippe O'Clair, because mm-hmm. it says if I didn't love football so much, I would uh, effing hate it, yep. which is a phrase that has been very present in my mind uh, these last few weeks and this week in particular. And the big question is, how are we actually meant to approach this? I mean, there is a pretty big boycott movement in in Norway, uh, which is one thing. And, and I, and I want to actually say straight away that if anyone who just follows modern football with all the moral compromises that that entails has just decided, you know what this tournament is a step too far for yep. me. I'm, I'm out. I you know I, I completely respect that. I completely understand that. I'll, I'll be taking a slightly different route personally. Uh, but, but how are we meant to uh, how are we meant to approach this? Um,
2: when it comes to the boycott, I can certainly understand uh, the sentiment in Norway because uh, there has been a movement in Norway for quite a while. And you know, I know that there was the um, the general meeting on the twentieth of June. So it's not something that suddenly has appeared on the agenda in Norway. In Norway, at least, uh, perhaps due, and I think in great part due to the quite remarkable work done by a number of Norwegian journalists. And again, hats off to my friend Havard at and 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 his team at at Jozima for this. But he was not the only one. There there were there were a few others. Um, I think the Norwegians have been much more aware of what was going on in Qatar uh, in terms of human rights violations in particular than other countries. So it it kind of makes sense for me. Elsewhere, I find this uh, very late call to boycott uh, quite embarrassing, to be honest, for some of the people involved. Um, And I think think I've, I've got a right to speak and I think I've got a certain legitimacy my very first piece on violation of human rights in Qatar linked to the World Cup was published in January 2013 nine years ago mm. at the time everybody ignored it. I came back to this a number of times trying to put the message across. I was completely ignored um, the, the articles we published were completely ignored and we carried on and on and on and on um, the you know human rights uh, agencies and NGOs which are today you know talking about Qatar have been talking about Qatar for years and years and years they've been trying to get the message across nobody has wanted to hear it at FIFA at UEFA in federations amongst the players and dare I say amongst most supporters and all the um, human rights um, Organizations that I can think of have been talking about the situation in Qatar for, for youngs. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. taking part in a, a debate with Rory Smith of, of the New York Times for Amnesty International about that very question. Something like six years ago, there was absolutely um, nobody else was talking about it.
1: And then, st- well, it's funny. I just did a quick search on this, and I actually quoted you <laughs> in an article in twenty thirteen. <laughs> Yeah, where you said, uh, I don't want to see a World Cup in arenas built by workers on on slave contracts. Uh Uh, uh, Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, Well, I can can trust that. I don't want to see a World Cup built in arenas that's built on. Workers on, built by workers on slave contracts, where uh, w- workers have no rights, where they have their passports confiscated, where there are no uh, you know health and safety laws at all, and where people are are dying in their building sites. For me, that's the end of the discussion. There's no more to say. That's the biggest point of all. Is it acceptable that people die for this? I'm quoting you actually in an article for Yosimar in 2013. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: that's that's uh, after I had uh, spoken to ITUC and so forth and um who have changed their tune a lot by the way, um mysteriously, hundred and eighty degrees u turn in 2018, but let's not get there. It's quite an interesting zone though, but anyway, um so yes, I was quite uh, quite sanguine at the time, but yeah, uh, what I think when I meant what I said at the time was totally justified, and when I talk now with the same people that i'm that I've been talking to for years at um you know fair square or H- human rights watch or amnesty international they all say the boycott movement that should have been five years ago it's too late yeah you know we have you know why wake up now there were world cup qualifiers didn't you know guys when you were yes. cheering on your team in a world cup qualifier where this team would play if it succeeded in its uh, in striving for qualification didn't you know that that's ridiculous. Yeah. That is absolutely, honestly. And, and so there is, a, I can understand some people are only discovering what's going on because they're not close to football and they might not be football fans and so on. And, and then they think, wow, we're going to have this. This is crazy. And, uh, and it is crazy, but it's much too late to do that. And also, I think there's a very big difference. I mean, also, I think it's a little bit rich for people who have basically not done, lifted a finger over all these years, suddenly to take us reporters to task, because we've got to talk about that for doing our job, which is to report on what we see on football grounds and around football grounds. And so um, are we supposedly, I mean, Qatar World Cup is, is really bad. I can tell you what is also really bad. Newcastle United is really bad. Really, really, really bad. So am I supposed to boycott Newcastle United? Actually, in a way, you know, I kind of do myself. I try not to talk about them. And when I talk about them, I always make sure to have a caveat. And I think that's what we can yeah. do for Qatar 2022. We shouldn't let these people get away with stealing a game that we absolutely love from us. We should not let mm. this happen. We have got to make them be aware, understand that we, this is our game. FIFA doesn't own the game. The People who own the game are the players and the, and, and the fans. End of story. That's it and we should never ever relinquish that we should never say the boycotting in this particular case is for me too late in hmm. some cases quite hypocritical even if i can understand why some people will and but there's a big, if you're a supporter for example i can totally and if i were just a supporter i would probably not bother with it I'm, if I'm honest, mm. Lars, I would probably not bother with it mm. because I find the whole thing disgusting. Um, as, a, as a freelance reporter, A, I mean, okay, let's be frank. I can't afford it. No, well, you know, yeah. and all these people are, are telling us, you know what, you should, uh, you should not uh, earn any money from that. And I'm thinking, you know what, I've been earning money from Qatar 2022 for 10 years because I've been writing about it, not about the competition, but what was around the competition. I've also covered some of the qualifiers. Should I feel bad about it? You know what, I don't really feel bad about it. I don't feel guilty. I feel responsible. There is a huge difference between the two. It's my job. This is what I do for a living. This is what you do, Lars, for a living. And it's amazing mm. that people would say, okay, well, why don't you sacrifice your earnings and perhaps your contract? Because I'm under contract with radio station or, uh, or, or, or a magazine. And I say, well, you know why? Because I want people to think that I'm a super, super nice human being. I'm not going to work for four weeks or five weeks with you. And then you're going to take me on again. I think, try this one again, guys. It won't work. <laughs> so I'm in a situation where I've got to think of myself and I've got to think of of, 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 of larger thing than myself. And trying to find a way through this. This is what we all have to do. But this is what I've been doing myself for nearly 10 years. And the boycott is not a solution. What you've got to do, write about the game. Absolutely write about the game. There is no reason why you should give them the satisfaction of not writing about the game. But make bloody sure you write about what is around the game you will see when you are commentating on television and you see one of the Tanis there that's the moment to tell people by the way this man was not elected he is the is the son of Sheikh hamad whom he deposed in 2013 the only way he's going to lose power is by being deposed himself his country doesn't have a functioning parliamentary democracy and carry on and on and on you can do that you can do that they show you a woman in the stadium. Oh, Then you can say, well, you know what? In normal circumstances, you wouldn't see her here or you wouldn't see her without a male guardian. And you carry on. And at the same time, you can say, I was a terrific ball by Kevin De Bruyne. And you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. is that it's possible because if you're a reporter around yeah. football these days, this is something which is inescapable. When I talk about Manchester yeah. City, I have to talk about financial fair play. I have to talk about the links between Sheikh Mansour, I mean, member of the uh, you know would that be a royal family, and and the regime. The fact that you know the guy who, who run, rules everything happens to be his bro his brother, uh, and and you carry on like that. When I talk about PSG, I talk about Nasser al and I talk about about the Qataris and what they do in football. So you you can do all these things, don't you know? In French, we say, don't be more monarchist than the king. There are limits to what we can do. And keeping silent is not a a, a position. I mean, I will go one extra inch myself, not extra mile, but I've, I've taken a decision to also use part of my earnings for some things that I will do about Qatar to actually help uh, NGOs which are working in the countries are concerned, not just Qatar, but the Gulf, um, to mm. help them do their work to defend human rights. Uh, it's not just to feel better about myself. It's I think that it's the right thing to do. And in fact, doing this, I'm following the example. Of the person who inspired me to do this is Craig Foster, who is one of the best human beings mm. on the planet and who is uh, uh, you know, the Australian former international who is now a very famous uh, anchor and analyst in, in Australia. but I'm not expecting other reporters to do the same. Uh, I will do what I can, but what the, the, the thing that I really can do is by reporting on, on what is happening there. and if it, if I decide I, w- I won't be going, that's 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 for sure. But if I report on, on on the game or the French national team or the England national team, you can be bloody sure that I will make sure to report also what is happening around those teams. Uh, their and, and their own attitude towards what is happening in Qatar as a whole which I think will be part of the discussion around the tournament
1: yeah it's funny you should say I've actually been in touch with with falls myself this week for uh, and had a similar had a similar discourse uh, and I, I think that's the direction I'll be going in myself as well there's there's two points first of which is you know if the people who object to this kind of vacate the discussion and i'm actually not just talking about reporters now i'm also talking about just fans in the discourse and social media and everything like if you just sort of remove yourself from the conversation then then that's a void that gets filled by people who don't care and who are not going to talk about the things you just mentioned Uh, and the, the and the second thing is it the idea that as A football fan, you can only engage with the sides of the industry that you're morally comfortable with. Like we've lost that battle many years ago. Like it isn't an option. It it just isn't an option anymore. The only thing that's left for us is to think: How can we not be useful idiots here? And I and I look back at Russia, which is an interesting test case for this, because actually going into the Russian World Cup, quite a few people were aware that this is terrible and this is a PR thing for a despot and came into it with that view. And, of course, you've named Chet Hovar at Yosmar again. They did that great article on uh, the, the workers who built the stadium in St. Petersburg and how North Korean laborers were, in, yeah. were involved, and that was all really awful. And people had that at the back of their minds. Yet at the same time, a lot of the same writers ended up doing pieces on, well, this is going pretty well, actually, and the Russians are jolly nice people and we're having a nice time. As, so even though we some people went into it with our eyes open, it, it ended up going in a slightly bad direction anyway, which kind of just highlights how, what a challenge it is to be mindful of the way you talk about these things and um, I think this is a bigger challenge for television than anyone else. It, can I just put that Hello. out there because when you're because when you're broadcasting these images, it's really hard for a commentator if you're say ahead of the opening game and you see on the monitor the thing that's going out on air are magnificent sort of aerial shots of this great stadium. It's very hard not to say, oh, look at this fantastic stadium. <laughs> the company, it's, just a, it's just a reflex. Whereas what you should actually say, or maybe not say anything about it, because you should remember how the people who built it were treated. Well, exactly.
2: Um, and I think you, you can do that. And I think you can also, by not even mentioning it, I think you can concentrate on the action uh, on the pitch. That's, that's fine. I think it's going to be very, very difficult, to be honest. I think the way we're talking about it now is it's very hypothetical because when it comes to when it comes yeah. to Russia, you know, we, when we came to Russia, I'd I'd been to Russia before, and I'd gotten very well with my Russian hosts, and um, mm. um, you know, Saint Petersburg is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and uh, I played at Doljanikey. You know, I was I was quite happy to have played at the <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I saw the stadiums in. The stadium in Sochi, but, and so on and carry on. And, you know, and Kazan is also an incredible city and blah, blah. And it's, and it's, it's a football country. It's a football country. And also the, the Russia that won the world cup in 2010 was not the Russia that actually staged it. It was very different. 2010 mm. be- was before the annexation of cri- Crimea. 2010, um, was also, you were wondering, well, Putin is soon going to come to the ter- end of his term. And you were thinking, okay, maybe. It, it was a Russia that was trying to present itself as opening itself to the world. Um, hmm. and, and Qatar is, but Qatar, nobody has been duped by it. At the time for Russian, I think people were quite duped. 2018, this being said, hmm. people shouldn't have been duped. We had, had had Chechnya, for example. We knew exactly what was happening to people, uh, to gay people. Uh, in in Russia. We we knew that. Uh, We knew what was happening to political opponents of of Vladimir Putin and his regime. We knew that. And then I have to say, yes, the conduct of some of our colleagues was not very, very good. Let's put it that way. Not very, very good at all. And, but they were taken on by, and I think for my British colleagues, they were also taken on by, you know, England making it to the semi-finals, which was unheard of. And, And, and in France, you know, I think France did rather well in that tournament. Seem to remember. So I think yeah. people were yeah. caught up in it, and it's easier to take your eye off the of the real target. In this particular case, I think it will be totally impossible for the simple reason that you know the fans themselves. And that's one thing I'm looking forward to is to the reaction of the fans when they discover what Doha is like. <laughs> Good luck, yeah. guys.
1: Yeah. I didn't have a strong urge to go back there. I have uh-huh. to say, after 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 I went on my big reporting trip and 20, 2015, it mm-hmm. was uh, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not my kind of place. But I guess the reason I brought up the Russian thing was not to specifically criticize anyone, but just actually to highlight how easily you can kind of get taken in by that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's kind of how the sports washing thing of it works. Yep. I had a recent conversation with an acquaintance who works for a radio station here in the UK who'd gone out to Saudi for one of those big boxing events and worked out there and said, well, we actually had a decent time because we were treated quite well and everything. And I was like, you, you idiot. Like, obviously you were treated well. You're a, you're, a, you're a white English person who was there to cover one of these mega events. Like the criticism of these countries are not to do with how you're going to be treated. <laughs> That's not the point, but 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 I mean I i do worry that there'll be a, a wave of people going. Well, we heard a lot of bad things about Qatar, but actually we're having a grand time down here. I mean that would be missing the point pretty spectacularly. Yeah, it
2: is um really spectacularly. Yes. Uh,
1: so so fingers crossed that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, no,
2: absolutely. But we can we can expect quite a few strange things to to happen there. And to be honest, I, I have to say, regardless, you know, I'm, I'm saying boycott is no longer a solution. It probably was one at, at one stage. Uh, it's no longer a solution. It's too late. Um, going there doesn't make you an outcast. Though I totally respect the um, point of view of people who decide to boycott it, um, especially people who've been talking about it for a long time. Um, that's fine. Uh, for the rest, um, this is, anyway, the most problematic uh, tournament that has ever been staged by FIFA. And we shouldn't forget one thing. is that... The one thing is that we've been talking a lot about Qatar, 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 and throwing things at Qatar. Bad people. Yes, 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 yes. You know who the worst people are? Let's not forget that. It's the people we are there because of FIFA. Mm. FIFA is responsible for this mess. Qatar played a game whose rules had been laid down by FIFA. FIFA is the prime responsible for the complete
1: mess we are in at the moment. And I mean, they didn't even follow those rules no. and FIFA are like, oh, that's fine. I guess we'll figure it out.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, terrible. It is. it is absolutely terrible, but that's, uh, that's sport governance for you. That's, I think, you know, when looking to the future, um, it's another proof that uh, this gigantism of, of international sport and global sport is really one of the biggest dangers. And, uh, to be honest, I, I don't know how it's possible to uh, to backpedal. Um, I think that uh, perhaps it will be uh, uh, climate change and the environment will make us think again about you know the magnitude of those events, which make no sense. I mean, the Qatari World Cup will be the uh, dirtiest sport event ever staged uh, in the history of sport, uh, with hardly uh, any compensation, actually almost no compensation at all. Uh, so, no offset. So, maybe that will be, you know, we'll be forced to do something about it because we don't have a choice to do anything different. But other than that, don't expect FIFA to reform itself. FIFA has all the powers it needs. FIFA responds to nobody uh, except FIFA. Uh, it holds all the powers, executive, legislative, um, judicial, constitutional, constitutional, it holds all the all the hands. There is absolutely no oversight whatsoever. Um, when you confront it, you go to uh, to CAS, and who is the second largest contributor, financial contributor to CAS? It's FIFA behind the IOC. <laughs> so yeah, the whole system is. I mean, it's it's beyond a joke, really. And um, so let's not give them the pleasure of thinking that they've won. And um, again, five years ago, if we boycotted, decided, okay, we're boycotting this World Cup, that might have made FIFA think again, it's much too late now. Uh, It's very sad, but again, let's go there. I think mindful is the adjective you use. I think it's a really good one. Let's go there with our eyes open, uh, you know, and our ears as well. and, And let's talk. Let's talk about what we hear and what we see. And if we do that, you know, I don't have a. I have a lot of problems with Qatar, but I don't have that particular problem.
1: Well, I think we'll call it there. Thank you very much for taking all this time oh. and uh, <laughs> talking us through how we got here and some interesting perspectives on how we proceed. Uh, I mean, the boycott movement is very strong in Norway, and again, totally uh, respect everyone's uh, view on that and how they decide to maneuver this tournament. Uh, but we've had some interesting thoughts, at least. Uh, from Philippe here on, on the other side yep. of it, so uh, we'll, just that that we can bear in mind going forward, we're, whichever way you decide to go uh, during this tournament. Uh, thank you so much, Philippe. And I'm going to just say, when the club football is back, got to have you on again to have a conversation about Arsenal. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to do
2: that, even though even though it will I'm a source of great pain for
1: you, but we will do that, absolutely. Can I just... Maybe that's a conversation for that pod, and this one's gone on for long enough. But the way I'm making peace with it, as as a Tottenham fan, is uh, (laughs) I'll never be. Listen, you're struggling. Listen, yeah, Arteta's Arsenal, like going winning the league, maybe is not something that I'll ever be happy about. But you know what? at least it would show that you can still do this without having an oligarch behind you, without having a petrostate behind you, without having like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or these crazy people behind you. If Arsenal could do it, it would be a test case for everyone else showing that it's still possible if you make smart decisions. Yep. Uh, and, and I want that to be true. I'm not entirely convinced it still is true, but I want it to be true. And if Arsenal can do it, then maybe someday Tottenham can do it, and that's how I'm sort of, that's how I'm talking to myself about it. Anyway, I, don't that,
2: I think that's a very, uh, a very fair way of approaching it, and I think a very healthy way of approaching it. And
1: uh, yeah, and I might just go off social media for a couple of weeks if it happens. Though that might have to be a <laughs> that's a, 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 perfectly all right. A, might have to do a, bla- a blackout and, and <laughs> take take my dog to a to a to a cottage in Wales and just forget about all the world right. for a little well, bit. you
2: do that then.
0: Okej. Okay. Det var Mr. Philippe og Claire en av de bästa men punktom här borte och alla andra städer efter min mening. Eh och intressant, lite deprimerande kanske. Men men det är er ju den situationen med och jag syns det var en fin prat att ha. Nu nu med på prickas in mot VM det var er som ska kör i fall. och så igen tredje gången, säger det nå va för si det så är gånger jag ingen problem med dig som väljer att bojkotta den snöringen helt grejt eh jag ska inte sitta och argumentera emot det men det jag håper på är er att de som föler väldigt starkt om det i alla fall har hört på argumenten från den andra riktningen och och klara utöva lite igen respekt i den riktningen och det vill det, det hade varit hyggligt med försök hos går det kanske livligt på sociala medier de nästa par veckorna oavsett tack för följde alla ha en schysst fotbollhelg med hörs igen snart